So we've been talking about Habakkuk. And the more I read Habakkuk, the more I study this cat, the more I realize he's a whole lot like us. It's, it's just like there's several centuries, like four, between him and us. And, you know, it's, it's amazing his thought process and the way he looks at God and the way he interacts with God and the things that he's doing and the way he manifests himself to God and the way God manifests himself back to him. And yet in all of that, I, I see Habakkuk as a, as a dude just like us. I mean, he, is, he puts his pants on, or his robe in his case, uh, no differently than what we do. And, and it's interesting because some of the things that we've been learning, like for instance, last week we've, we learned that man has limitations. We learned about the four elements of our limitations. So the first one would be limited potential. A lot of people just say, you know what, you've got unlimited potential. That's not true. We have limited potential. The second is, is that we're limited in our ability. God is not limited in his ability, but we definitely are limited in our ability. The good news for you is that I'm not a dentist and I'm not a brain surgeon. I have limited ability. The uh, third thing that we looked at is that limited in time. We are limited into, we have a number of years that have been set before us and we are going to live those years out. The Bible tells us that, that God has ordained the day that we leave this planet Earth. It's already preset. We're, we're going to die one day. Uh, you know, and some people look at that as really bad news. That is not bad news. That's the good news. The bad news is you might live to be 110. Yikes on that one. So if you think about time and you took all of recorded history and you condensed it into one hour, from the beginning with Adam and Eve right up to where we are right now, if you condensed that and you squeezed it all into one hour, your life in that one hour would be like two milliseconds. It would be like, blink, blink, you're gone. Think about that. Your life, the span of your life, in, a, in an hour would be two milliseconds. And so... Uh, that kind of puts us in a bit of a like, wow, okay, not a lot of time. The fourth thing is, is that we're absolutely limited in our scope and in our understanding. Like right now, you have no idea what's going on behind you. You have no idea what's going on downtown. You have no idea what's going on up at the lake. You have no idea what's going on around the state. And so we have this really limited um, understanding and scope of things. Even with the technology that we have right now, you are still very limited in what you know. And despite our um, limitations, we think we have a greater understanding of it. But it, now if you go back and you think about the whole time thing where you've got two milliseconds, it, it's like now you watching, if there's an hour-long television program that you're watching on television, but you only get to see two milliseconds of that, that program. Now you're going to sit down and argue with the guy that put the TV program together what that program is about. That's the conversation you have with God when you start to tell God what he should be doing and how he should be doing it. 
when you start to get Mr. or Mrs. Bossy Pants about what God's doing or what he isn't doing. And that's where Habakkuk comes in. Because he's in the same boat. He's limited by his time. He's limited by his understanding. He's limited by his, his scope. He's limited by his ability. He's limited by his potential. And yet he's got this complaint against God where he comes and he tells God, you know what? I can't believe you're allowing this nation to operate the way that they're operating. Sound like a, a prayer you've prayed recently, maybe? I mean, with all the shenanigans you've seen on television in regards to all the stuff that's happening politically in our country, all the things that are happening racially in our country, all the things that are happening in regards to disrespecting the authority that God has placed over the people that are around us like police officers. You might be wondering, God, are you even paying attention? God, are you even looking at what's going on? Do you even have anything to say about this? And that's what Habakkuk is saying to God. He's coming to God and he's going like, I don't get why you're doing this. I don't know why you're, you're not watching more closely what's going on. I can't believe you're not doing something. And God responds to Habakkuk and he says, Oh, brother, don't you think for one little moment that I'm not doing something. Don't you even think. You cannot see under the surface. You do not have the scope of understanding that I have. You don't know what's about ready to come down the, the road towards Jerusalem. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Chaldeans. They are a wicked, mean, ungodly nation. And they are going to come down and they are going to devour Jerusalem. They are going to lay it to waste and they are going to bring my punishment upon you. Now, here's where Habakkuk goes like, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. Because that's not who you are. You're a holy and righteous God, you need to bring a holy and righteous judge onto Judah and to the city of Jerusalem. Don't bring these wicked, sinful people to, to bring your judgment to us, God. You can't do that. I mean, you're not really serious. You're really not going to wipe us out. You're not really going to kill us all. You're not really going to bring that judgment to us. And, and surely you're too holy for that. Surely you wouldn't do that. And there's no way that you're going to do that. See, now he's talking back to God. In his little millisecond of life on planet Earth, now he's talking back to God who has the whole scope of everything in mind. And so as he looks at it, now what he tries to do is he tries to butter God up a little bit. He tries to give him a little bit of sweet talk to God. And he says, no, I, I really don't think you're going to, to let us die. I just don't think that's going to happen. And then at the beginning of, and, and he thinks he's got God kind of in the corner. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, now he has a little bit, you know, because God's talking with him. God's giving him stuff. And all of a sudden, he's got a little bit of, I've got God's ear. I've got a little bit of swagger here. So I've given you my complaint now, God. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to stand, and I'm going to watch, and I'm going to see, how are you going to answer my complaint now? Just a little bit of the swagger is what he's got going on. And... And so that's his idea, is he wants to see what God's going to do concerning all his complaints about this stuff. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 2 with verse 2. And it says, and the Lord answered me. Now this is Habakkuk. He's telling us what God is doing. And the Lord answered me. This is what God told him to do. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets 
so that he may run who reads it. Now, let me get you to understand this. He's given Habakkuk a vision of what's going to happen to Jerusalem and to Judea. He's given it to him, and he says, you really don't believe that I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want you to write this down on a piece of parchment. I want you to get a tablet of stone, and I want you to etch this out on a tablet of stone, and I want you to put it as a big monument plaque right at the gates of Jerusalem so that everybody who walks in, they're going to stop, they're going to read it, they can't burn it, they can't run off with it, it's there, they get to see it, and when they see what I am going to do, they're going to turn and they are going to run as fast as they can and get out of Judah because the Chaldeans are coming. And, and so he's going he's gonna to write this down, he's going to chisel it in the stone. And this is one of the things that you should really be encouraged by God about, is he doesn't try to hide his promises from you. He's very open about what he promises to do. And he doesn't change them either. When he talks about a promise, he does not change his promise. In fact, he's always reminding people, even sometimes hundreds of years Later, I mean, if you think about Isaiah, Isaiah made this great prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and who he was going to be. He was going to be the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. He made these promises about Jesus, who he was going to be when he came. And, and it didn't happen for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years it didn't happen. And God kept saying, I've made this promise to you. I've made this promise to Abraham. I've made this promise don't you forget about the promise I made. It just hasn't come to fruition yet. And so that's what we see what God is saying next to uh, Habakkuk. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, you see, I think the problem that we have is, is kind of like Habakkuk. He got a little bit impatient with God. He got a little bit put out with God not stepping up and doing it as fast as he wants him to do. Does that sound a little bit maybe like your life? You're asking God to do something, and you want God to do it right now. Come on, God, what are you waiting for? Listen, I've got a time frame on this thing, and so I need you to act sooner rather than later. I need you to show up. I need you to do your thing. I need you to make me look good. I need you to do something in my life. I need you to straighten out my kids. I need you to give me a new husband. Just, oh yeah, dig that guy. And God's going to say like, you know what? I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you something that you didn't ask for, something that's better for you, something you never saw coming. And so that's, that's where we find our, our buddy Habakkuk. He's going like, okay, this is a promise that you're making. And God made this promise to Habakkuk. And, and here's the thing that is really so different about God and us. When God makes a promise, he always follows through with it. Maybe not on your timing, but on his timing. His timing is always perfect. God always follows through on his promise to us. And he's the same way with here with Habakkuk. And, the, and, and there's a difference between God's promise and I'm going to call it his threat. Now, let me, let me explain that to you. You don't think God threatens people? He does. Matter of fact, if you go and you read the other uh, little 
prophet, Jonah. You remember Jonah and the big fish? Well, the, 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 you know, everybody kind of gets Jonah and the big fish, but they forget about Nineveh. Nineveh was kind of like the Chaldeans. They were a wicked nation, an ugly, wicked nation. They were doing all kinds of horrific things. That, I mean, just mind-blowing how they were evil and wicked. And so God says to Nineveh through Jonah, he says, if you don't repent, I am going to come in and I am absolutely, utterly going to destroy you. There won't be even a stone left. You had better repent and turn from your wicked ways. That's the threat. So the message comes and they believe God means what he says. And so they repent. And they walk around in sackcloth and ashes, and God relents. God doesn't follow through. God didn't make a promise. He said, this is what's going to happen. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Now, the promise is he'll, he'll follow through on whatever he says he's going to do, and that's exactly what he did. And so that's what happened with Jonah. And so the Lord really comes to us. God comes to us and makes promises to us. Matter of fact, in Numbers 14, 18, this is not on the screen, I want to show you one of the promises that God makes that is still true to us today. Even though it was made in the Old Testament, some people have a, a real problem connecting that the New Testament, the Old, they, they see them as separate things and that they're not tied together. But my thing for you is, if you don't get to understand and really know the Old Testament, you will never fully engage in the New Testament. You have to know where we have come from in order to know where we are. So here's the promise that God made in Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. We'd like to just stop right there because that sounds pretty good. That's a promise God has made. But there's two parts to this promise. By no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Do you, do you get that? Remember last week, I talked about the things that you do right now in, in today are going to have devastating effects on tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year. What you do now makes a difference down the road. And this is one of those things that God's talking about here. He says, if you, if you do not follow, if you do not obey, if you do not step into relationship, if you are not walking with Jesus, if you're not obeying the things that I do, if you persist to walk in your wickedness, in your evil ways, I am going to take that and I am going to transfer that thing all the way to the third and fourth generation of your family. So think about that. Some of your, your bad behavior, some of your rebellious nature that you have against God is going to show up not just in your kids, but in your grandkids and your great-grandkids. What a nice inheritance Grandpa left for us. But God's love, His steadfast love, goes on to a thousand generations when you've made a clear choice and you've decided you're going to follow Jesus you've got this thing from God that is absolutely incredible 
And so what we see about God is that he is infinitely oops, boundless. God is infinitely boundless. He's infinitely boundless in his promises. He's infinitely boundless in his abilities. He's infinitely boundless in his um, understanding and scope. God keeps his promises. And, and believe me you, it's, it's like we end up kind of like with Habakkuk. Because the thing we have here with Habakkuk in these two verses that we've looked at this morning is that Habakkuk really doesn't believe. I mean, he believes in God. He's having this conversation with God. God's giving him a vision of what's going to happen in the future. But the thing about Habakkuk is he really doesn't believe that God's going to follow through on that stuff. And so it kind of comes like out of this this quote that I picked up, and I read this book a long time ago, and you've heard me talk about it, is that I think Habakkuk may have been, no, probably not, I think it's been a, a thing that we've had to deal with ever since the beginning of mankind, is that we would be what we would call Christian atheists, is that we believe that God exists, and we believe who God is, but what we do is we live our lives as though God doesn't do anything. And so there are these promises that God has given to us that have been fulfilled. And, and, and Habakkuk knows some of these promises. He's just forgotten them. He's forgotten what God has done. So let me help you understand some of these promises. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, that's where God's having an interaction with Abram. And Abram is a man that God has called out. Guess where, guess where he came out of? Guess the tribe, the nation that he came out of? Chaldeans. The very same ones that are going to come down and, and destroy Judah. The very same ones that are going to bring God's judgment upon them. They're Abram's relatives. How's that for God's kind of irony on the whole thing? I'm going to bring your, your uncle, your cousin Eddie to bring a little spank on you. And so he come, God comes to Abram and he says... I'm going to make out of you a great nation of people. Out of this great nation, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's the promise that we get out of Genesis chapter 12. And Abram doesn't have any children at that time. And, and he's looking around and he's going like, whoa, wait a minute, God. Listen, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. And I know you know everything. But I don't know if you've been counting my birthdays. I'm like 75. I don't have any kids. And my wife... He doesn't get, she doesn't, you know, he just says she's older. And he's going like, yeah, you know, I mean, like, we've been trying for a long time. No, ain't, something ain't happening here. And so they're kind of like, okay, but God still has this promise. And he says, you know, I, but I, I know that this is, is, is possible with you. And then in Genesis 15, God says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what, have, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar 
of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is going to be the heir. In other words, he's going like, You know what? God, you told me back there that I was going to have this boy and that he was going to be a, a, become a great nation and that the whole world would be blessed through him. But right now, the only guy that's going to inherit this thing is my crazy cousin from Damascus, and he's, he's nuts. And my stuff's going to go to him? I can't believe it. And this is what God said to him. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him again. And the man, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look up toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, here's the thing about Abram. He's going like, okay, you made this promise to me. You said that I'm going to have this kid, and that was 25 years ago. So, you know, I was like old then. I'm really old now. And I still don't have a kid. And crazy Eddie from Damascus is going to get everything. And this is driving me crazy. And then God's going like, no, 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 come outside. I want to show you something. And so he's standing there. Can you imagine looking at the Milky Way, looking at the Big Dipper, looking at Orion's Belt? I think that's right. Looking at all the constellations in the sky. And God says, now I want you to start counting them. I want you to start counting them because that's how many offspring you're going to have. That is what your family is going to look like. And Abram's like, okay, I believe you. And so what, what we see here with Abram is that there is a shadow of what was yet to come. And actually what God does is he gives him this promise and he keeps the promise with him. And then later in Romans, Paul, when he's talking about faith, he says that Abraham was justified by his faith, that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, this is part of the, the picture that a lot of people don't get. They believe that they have to go out and they have to do stuff. They have to earn their way. They have to make themselves good enough for God. They have to be right with God. They have to present themselves as something that they can never be in order to appease God and to please God so that they have this relationship with God. And what Paul's saying to the Roman church is, don't even believe that nonsense. Because it's not about you. It's about being justified by Christ's blood. That's what it's all about. It's nothing that we do to bring right standing. Our right standing is only coming through Jesus Christ. And that's where the promise came to us. Because back in... In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and the serpent did his thing, all this thing is going on, God made a promise right then to Adam and Eve. And he says, I am going to bring to this planet Earth my son, and he's going to be a snake crusher. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And when he does that, that is going to set everyone who is held captive by sin, death, Guilt and shame set them all free. Because they get to live in the newness of all of that. And so these are the promises that God has given to Abram. And he's looking and he can't see the end of it. He doesn't know who Jesus is. 
He knows about the Messiah. He understands the Son of God, but he really doesn't know who Jesus is. And so he's going by faith that God is going to do something miraculous through him and through his family. And so what we find also in the book of Romans and what Paul tells us is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't just die for the people at that present time or those people who in the future would say, I believe in Jesus, he's my Savior, he's the Son of God, he's the one that's forgiven me my sins, his blood has covered me, he's removed my sins forever as far as the east is from the west, he's done all that for me, I believe that, we believe that, because that's what we've been taught, because that's what the truth is that God presented to us through Jesus Christ. But what happened on the cross is far more significant than what had happened to us. Because the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross also covered the sin of Adam and Eve and every other person who walked with God but didn't know Jesus. Jesus' blood is retroactive, is a grandfather clause, and so all those people are now right relationship with God. Woohoo! All right, well, maybe I'm just a little too excited about that kind of thing. So, there's this amazing thing that happens as we take a look at God because we have this understanding that we, we, we get this picture of God and how he is infinitely boundless in all of these things for us. And, and yet, what happens in that is, is that we see, we get this picture of, of who God is. As a matter of fact, God had kept making these promises all the way through. He made a promise to, to King David. And he said, listen, your, your bloodline will be on the throne forever. Forever. We don't get that. You know, we put on our, our Facebook, BFF forever, you know. Whoop-de-doo, that means like five minutes. What, you just posted that? Or you did that and you didn't invite me to go along? I'm unfriending you. Oh, that really hurt. But God gave King David's son Solomon the privilege to build the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, this thing was crazy good temple. Magnificent in all aspects. And and after the temple is built, and they're going to move the Ark of the Covenant into the new temple behind the, the great curtain where the Holy of Holies is going to reside, where God would be. Here's what King Solomon says in 1 Kings. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. It's, you see, what he's t- saying here, what, what Solomon is saying here is, I understand the scope and magnitude of who you are. You, you fill the entire universe. When I look as you told my, my great, 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 whoever he was, great Abram, Abraham, that these stars is us, I believe that you told him that. And I believe you put these stars up here in the sky. I believe you told every one of them what their name was. I, told, I believe you told them what to do. 
I believe all that stuff. I believe you built it. I believe your presence is everywhere in the universe, on the earth, everywhere. So how can this tiny little house called the temple of God hold you? And what God's reminded Solomon about is the same thing he told Abram in Genesis 12. This is going to be about the world, not just about you. But like he said to Abraham, through you I am going to bless the world. So when Solomon finally builds the temple, he's like, I know your presence is going to be here, but surely this house can't contain you. Which brings me to where I really think we need to have an honest conversation with ourselves about life, about the big things of life, about the things in life that, that we take for granted, things that we just don't really think about, things that we don't comprehend, things that can kind of blow our mind if we were to spend any time thinking about it. But here's, here's my deal this morning with you. I may have a bone to pick with you this morning. And here's my bone that I may have to pick with you. Is if you came here this morning to meet with God, then you came for the wrong reason. Because if that's your intention, what you're saying is the only time I will ever, ever meet with God is when I go to church. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible doesn't say, you know, I mean, if you go back into Matthew when Jesus was crucified on the cross, and it tells us in Matthew that when Jesus died, the earth shook, there was an earthquake, and that the curtain in the temple that was at least six inches thick, 20 feet tall, it ripped from top to bottom, from the top to the bottom of this thing, not by the hand of man, but by the hand of God. And when God ripped that veil, he said this, God is leaving the house. He's not going to be here anymore. He's going to reside in the hearts and lives of men and women because that's what the church is about. The church isn't the building. The church is you. So if you've come here thinking, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to meet with God and we're going to be, you know, having this great thing going on and then, on, and then I'm going to leave and leave God in the church, you are sadly mistaken because let me, let me prove my point to you from Psalm 139. And it, we're starting right around verse 7, and it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. So David, Solomon's daddy, he wrote this, and he noticed that, 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 he, that God was everywhere. And we see that because of his, his use of personal pronouns. Wherever I go, you are there. So he's not saying, if I go to the mountain, you might be there. Your authority and dominion is there. No, he's saying, you are absolutely there. Your presence is there. And, and, he, and he's, he says, even in the darkness, even when I don't see light, you are there in the middle of my night. 
And the Bible talks about this all the time, about God's goodness, God's presence, God's ability to be everywhere. He even says this to his disciples. He, Jesus encourages his disciples, and he says this to them. Listen, I know, and my Father knows, and the Spirit knows everything that's going on because we even know when the bird of an air falls to the ground. We know that. So here's what, what is really important for us to get today is because when we talk about God and when I talk about God, I don't want you to think about this kind of nebulous kind of theory of God. I want you to think in the reality of who God is. And so this is what it looks like. So every time I talk about God, I want you to think of this. I want you to think of the Father. That's an A. I want you to think of the Son, and I want you to think of the Holy Spirit. And this is what you need to know, because when it says right here in Psalm 39, when it says that, that God's presence is on the mountain, where shall I go from your spirit? It's not just the Father that we're talking about. We're talking about the Son. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the all-encompassing triune God, and He is everywhere, and He does everything, and He knows everything. This is the thing about it. And so when you come to church and you go, let's go worship God at church today. God's going, I've been with you all week long. Would you, where, where are you, you think you're going to church because that's where I'm waiting for you? I've been waiting for you every morning when you get up. Before your feet hit the ground, I've been at the edge of your bed saying, good morning, son. Good morning, daughter. I love you deeply. I care passionately about you. Let's do this day together. That is the word of God to us every cotton-picking single day. And, and, and what happens is, is that we don't, we don't see it that way. Matter of fact, I, Isaiah says, if a man moves from here to there, God knows he moved. You don't get lost in the shuffle. God doesn't go, now where did I place that Ken guy? He was, you can't miss him. He wears those bright, ugly orange shirts. He's bald and... I mean, you just can't miss the cat. Where is he? He doesn't miss places. He knows exactly where we are all the time. He knows when you're in bed. He knows when you get up. On some level, that should be really encouraging to us. On another level, that should be really frightening to us. Just think about the things maybe you've done the things you've watched, the things you've said, the, the way you've behaved, and you're, you're acting as though God's not even present in the room, as though God's not even there. And you're talking about people, and you're saying naughty things, you're thinking bad things about somebody, you're watching something on the computer, you're watching something on your phone, you're watching something on the television, you're listening to something you shouldn't be listening to, and this whole time, you act as if God's not even around. You act as if God's taking a nap up in heaven. You're acting as if God is a far distant God who is not up close and personal, and you couldn't be further from the truth. That's the greatest lie that the devil wants you to think about is that you are alone and God doesn't care. You can do whatever you want to and it's going to be just honky-dory with God. And when you do sin, he's just going to be like an old grandpa that really doesn't care and he's going to wink at you. I got that, but don't you worry about it. That's the biggest lie you could ever get. 
And, and the thing is, is that we think about God as our, you know, we don't think of him as father. We don't think of him as triune God. We think of him as kind of this, this fantasy thing up there that's far away and nebulous. And so as we talk about God and we talk just in, in generic terms about God, it doesn't become the reality of God in our lives, that he's with us everywhere, that, that Jesus the Son is with us everywhere, that the Holy Spirit resides within us and he is with us everywhere because that is the truth about who God is. Matter of fact, Hebrews really helps us to get our heads wrapped around this. This is what Hebrews says, and, and it says, He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. I'm just going to stop there real quick because if it's the exact imprint of His nature and the glory of God, that means that when it's the imprint of His nature, it means He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. There isn't anything that's hidden from him, from Jesus. He is exactly like his father because he is the triune God. One God in three different essences, persons. That's who he is. And, and it says that he, still Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word of his power. This is what Jesus does. He holds this all together. He's the glue on all of this by his word. If he spoke it, he could destroy it. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews tells us that everything we can attribute to God the Father is also true about Jesus and is true among us. And so what we have to understand is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they don't just know about tomorrow. Get this, I want, I want you to hear this. They don't just know what's going to to take place tomorrow, like we can figure out kind of like tomorrow, because tomorrow we've already set plans. Um, you're going to drive to work. You know the job you're going to do at work. You know the things you have to get done. You know the appointed time when you want to be done with work. Then you know you want to come home, and you know that your wife or your children or somebody, some magical person, has made dinner, and it will be waiting for you as you walk in through the door. Because that's kind of what we know. But let me tell it to you this way. God doesn't know tomorrow. God is already in tomorrow. God's already there. Now, for those of you that have anxiety issues, those of you that have fear issues, this might be really disturbing to you. But God made the promise that he's going to be there. So here's what we know about God. He's loving and he's a faithful God. And he's prepared a way for you. He, the Bible tells us that, that he, he brought you to this place of salvation in Christ. He has brought you into faith. He called you to this place. You responded to his invitation to come. And when you responded to his invitation to come, now he's not just turning you loose and saying, get out the door, good luck. No, what he's doing is, I'm going to walk before you, I'm going to walk behind you, I'm going to hover over you, and I'm going to come beside you. And when you can't walk, I'm going to carry you through this thing. That's his promise, never to leave us or to forsake us. He's going to bring all this good work, work to fruition. So here's what we do know. We know that God knows everything, and he sees everything, but not only that, but he is good, and he does good in all of his work and governance which is completing, which means that Jesus makes the promises to us. 
for us to live every day. So let me give you some of the promises <clears throat> that Jesus has given to us. John chapter 10. He says, this is Jesus speaking, I am the door. Get that. I am the door. That means you have to go through a door. In order to come in here this morning, you had to go through a door. There was no other way to get into the building other than going through a door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Pasture is a reference for a place of rest. Rest, feeding, comfort, security. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How many times have you heard me say that? That's the enemy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That is the promise that has been made for you. If, get that. Did you see what Jesus says? He says, I'm the door. And then he makes this promise conditional because it's not a, a one-way one street. God wants us acting together with him. He says, if you enter the door. If. In other words, not everybody's going to be saved because not everybody's going to want to walk through the door. Not everybody's interested in Jesus. Not everybody wants to love Jesus. Not everybody thinks they need Jesus. There are people that think they can do it all on their own, that they don't need anybody else in this world to do it. Matter of fact, they might even think that Jesus is just a big hoax and that he doesn't play any, any kind of rule in their life at all. He has nothing to do with them. Those are the people who will not enter in by him. And, and continuing on in John 10, Jesus said this, I give them eternal life, and they will never what? Perish. We're not talking about physical. We're talking about spiritually perishing. That's what Jesus is talking about. You will never spiritually perish when you have eternal life that he gives to you. And again, here's the next phrase that is great comfort to us and is a promise that he's given to us. No one will snatch them out of my hand. When you are in the, in the will of God, in the, in, the, in the very palm of Jesus, doing what he wants you to do, you will be in no safer place. Even though there may be danger all around you, when you are absolutely at the center of God's will, that is the safest place for your life. Now let me give you a little bit more. Romans 8, we know this verse. We've, we've heard it, Romans 8, verse 28. <clears throat> and sometimes this verse gets used inappropriately at the wrong time. I just want to say that right at the get-go. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. So you and I are part of a larger story. We're not the point of the story. And I think that's one of those places where we as evangelicals have been kind of hijacked because at some point or another, someone has been teaching that it's all about us. Jesus died on the cross for us because Jesus went to the cross for us. It's all about us and Jesus died for us and Jesus wants us and all the rest of that us, us, us kind of thing. Now you're going to go like, but isn't that true? Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but the reason why Jesus went to the cross, primary reason was to glorify the Father. You're second, or you're the first loser. That's what second place means, first loser. And that's where you are. 
God, Jesus says, Father, I'm going to the cross. Glorify me as I've glorified you. And God says, I'm going to glorify you, son. I'm going to give you the glory that you had before you came to earth. I'm going to reestablish that glory in your life. And all of a sudden, we're going to like, wait a wait a minute. What about us? And God goes, don't worry, I love you. It's because of the glory that he's going to get through this cross thing that you're going to be rescued, that you're going to be saved, that you're going to find freedom, that your, your sins are going to be forgiven, that you will spend eternity with me. It's because of the glory of Jesus. Paul goes on to say in chapter 8, he says this, For I am sure. In other words, this is extreme confidence he has in the promises of God. I am sure that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, no height, no depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not just in Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus what? That's right. He has to be your Lord in order for you to know these promises. He has to be your Lord in order for you to find the peace that he promises. He has to be your Lord in order for you to have all the things that Paul is absolutely sure of that God would never be separated from us. But it comes on the cost of Jesus being your Lord. So not only do all these things work together for my good, but nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And that's pretty extensive. And that's one of the greatest promises that we have because it's not life, not death, not angels, not demons. Nothing able to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think what would happen if we could just take that little aspect of our lives, that promise of God, and when you walk out of the doors and you're leaving the building, not God, you're not leaving the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit here. You're taking them with you. But you walk in this promise that He's going to be with you no matter what. That there's nothing in this planet, on this earth, that can separate you from that love. No matter how mean your boss is. No matter how flat your tire is. No matter how much of a fight you have with your spouse. No matter how rebellious your kids are. All those things, none of that will take and separate you from the love of God. That's the promise that He has made for you. And when we start to live what we believe, our world will be absolutely transformed. It will be different. It will feel different. It will have greater meaning. It will be, we will behave differently than we do. But far too often we live of those, we look at those promises of God and we don't think they're real and we don't think that they're true. Sometimes I think we're kind of like, spiritually speaking, like middle-aged Middle school kids. You know what middle school kids do? They get up in the morning. They demand breakfast from their parents. They get their teeth brushed. Then they want, I don't want to ride the bus. You need to drive me to school today. Honey, we don't have a vehicle. Dad took it to work. Well, I don't care. Call dad, tell him, come pick me up. He's in Montana. So? That's the way middle kids, middle, middle school kids kind of like to behave. They, they're so narcissistic, the whole world revolves around them. It's craziness. And a lot of times what these parents want to do is they want to go, hey, Jimmy, come here. No, come closer. Jimmy, come closer. Pow! <laughs> That's from Jesus. He says, I love you. 
That's what middle school kids do to you. They drive you bonkers. But yet, you, you, you just, you, on one hand, you want to just strangle them. But on the other hand, there's these moments when they come home and they go, oh, mom, I'm so glad to see you. What a horrible day at school. I love you so much. You're the best. I can't believe, mom, have I told you recently how much you mean? And you're like, this kid got dropped off at the wrong house. <laughs> it ain't my child. And so you have those tender moments with those children. But guess what they never think about? Even though they love Jesus, they never think that God goes with them to school. They never think that Jesus is in the locker room with them. They don't never know that Jesus is looking at what's pinned up in their locker. They don't know any of those things about Jesus because they never give it a second thought. Do you know why they don't give it a second thought? Because mom and dad have not taught them. Hate to, hate to break the news to you. I'm not the guy that's supposed to teach your kids. Matt's not the guy that's going to teach your kids. I'm not responsible for their, their spiritual well-being. I'm not responsible for their spiritual growth. All I'm doing is I'm giving you the tools. You take the tools, you grow those children up the way God calls you to grow them up because he's promised that he's going to do that for you. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, way back in Deuteronomy, when Moses was writing this stuff, here's what he said. He said, but from there you will seek the Lord with the Lord your God and you will find him. Seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. This is a promise that he says, if you seek me, there again, it's conditional, if you seek me, you'll find me. What are you seeking after? Because if you have an empty life, you are not seeking after God. If you have continual fighting with your spouse, you have not been seeking after God. If you keep looking at your bank account and wondering why you don't have any money, and that's all you can think about, you have not been seeking after God. What are you seeking after? Let's move on, because I'm going to give you some rapid-fire things here, because time is pressing on. First Chronicles, and I'm not skipping it this week, because these are really important for you to know. First Chronicles 16, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. How long does it endure? That's right. He doesn't quit on us. He never stops on us. His fast love, his steadfast love endures forever beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to get our minds around what that looks like. Let's carry on. Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Again, God's made a promise, but it's a conditional promise on our part. You see, a lot of these promises are conditioned on how we respond to God. He says once again, if my people or who called by my name humble themselves and pray. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Get this, here's the promise. He's made, he's going to comfort you in your affliction, but why does he comfort you in your affliction? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, as though Christ, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, when you're going through that nasty, rotten, no good, 
whatever life circumstances you're in, is absolutely the most horrible thing, instead of saying to God, why God, why me? You need to say, God, what do you want me to learn from this? Because here's the thing about God. He never, he never, ever, 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 ever wastes the pain. Whatever pain you're going through, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God doesn't waste that pain. He wants you to put it in the memory bank. He wants you to remember how he came and met you in your affliction, how he brought comfort to you. Maybe it was through someone else. Maybe it was through his word. Maybe it was through the manifest presence of his spirit in your life. However he does it, however he's doing it, when he does that, he's saying, I'm doing this for you because at some point, you're going to take what you have learned about me and you're going to bring this comfort to those who are afflicted because you know what my comfort looks like. We're almost done, I promise. Philippians 1, 6. And Paul says this again. Here's the words he says again. And I am sure, absolute confidence, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's not giving up on you. Even when you don't read the word, even when you haven't been in the word for months, even when you go through a dry period. By the way, who here has ever gone through a dry time from the word of God besides me? Thank you for joining the club. There are just times when I feel like an autumn leaf just... No life in me. There's nothing. I feel dry. I feel like if a stiff breeze came, it would blow me away and I would make no impact on anybody ever again. And that's the way my life is sometimes. And yet God hasn't given up. He says he's going to bring this thing that he brought me into, this faith he started in me, this good work he's working out in me. He's going to bring it to completion regardless of how I feel. Philippians 4. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the what of God? Say it again, the what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If, if, you're just, if you are walking in anxiety, in turmoil... Now listen, I understand that there are things that happen within the human brain which brings a chemical imbalance and causes people to be anxious, and they have a hard time with that. And so thank God he's given us doctors to help us understand all that thing and pharmacists that know how to put that together so that we can get that back into normal. But I'm talking just about the normal anxiety we have in life. That, that if we want to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. It comes because of God and what he's doing in our lives. And he guards out not, just, not just your brain, not just your intellectual thought. He guards your feelings. That's what the heart is. These are the promises from God. So here's how I want to end this morning. Because we have all these promises, and here's the problem that we have. We are all in this boat. We, were, we are all, at one time or another, identified as Christian atheists. Because what we do, at one time or another, is we say we believe God, but we live as though he doesn't exist in our lives or is a part of our life at any place. We do it almost daily, weekly. And I'm not just pointing my finger at you. I'm saying, I'm in the same boat as you. And so what God is calling us to do 
is to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our understanding, and acknowledge him in all of our ways, and he will direct and make our paths straight. That's the process that God has for us. And so my question to you today is, where are you in your walk with God? Is he something out there nebulously that you just kind of talk about, but he's not here in reality? He rules out there, but he rules nothing here. Then, then his call to you today, his call to you is to come to him and to find him to be the one who leads you through life. Not the one that you need when you kind of have some stuff going on and you just cry out at a moment's notice. He wants to be in front of you. He doesn't want to be the little guy on the shelf. And so you may be feeling a little bit beat up by life. You may be feeling a little bit worn out and weary and anxious. And you just don't know what to do. But these, these are infinitely boundless promises that are true as true the day that God said them. They're as true today. So here's Jesus' invitation for you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't you thankful that he keeps inviting us to come? Amen. Father, we thank you today that regardless of where we're at, regardless of what we think, regardless of the way we've talked to you or not talked to you, you have promised us that there will be nothing that comes into our lives that can ever take us away from you, that you won't ever give us something that, we, that, that you, with your help, will help us to overcome. We run into things, God, all the time that are more difficult than what we can bear, and that's why you keep calling us to come, because you're the one that bears them for us. And so we thank you that you are enough to satisfy our deepest longings, that you are the one that gives us and forgives us, that, that when we seek you, we will find you, and that you come and passionately seek into the deepest part of our soul and create in us worship and relief from sorrow and anger and bitterness. And you give us much more of a heart of Jesus than we could ever understand or imagine. And so today we just simply ask that you would make yourself real to us every day, not just today, not just now, not just in, for this hour, but for every day that you would be the, the God of reality for our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.